Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, the man who couldn't cry. Shooting your girlfriend and missing her afterwards. Sin and redemption and singing a song by your ex-son-in-law. Got the number 13 tattooed on my neck When the ink starts to itch Then the black will turn to red I was born in the... In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Happy Memorial Day. Same we are... I'm joined tonight with Tony and uh, J.M., or Jonathan, whatever the hell we're calling you these days. <laughs> Hello, we are bro. coming to you live from the Vinegaroon Saloon in Austin, Texas, in the delightful progressive neighborhood of Brentwood. North of the river. North, North of the river. And I, I want to say a special thank you to Tony for crossing uh, the Colorado River and joining <laughs> us on this side. Thank you. I did have to... Uh Take care of a nosebleed. When I go this this far north, it tends to tends to happen from time to time. See, Tony's one of those people that if you ask them where north is, they point up. That's right. Um, <laughs> and we're, we're joined with JM, who came all the way from Leander. Yeah, I had to get the bobsled team out to head, to head south here. Leander is the place where people who think Austin is cool go after they feel like it's not that cool anymore. <laughs> When they want to own a home. <laughs> All right, so enough about us. We are in the Vinegaroon Saloon, and we're broadcasting. This is our second podcast when we're all in the same room, and Tony is not in a closet, so we're pretty excited about that. It's nice to be out of the closet, back. That's right. And we're very excited about the record we're doing tonight. We're taking on one of America's biggest... Uh, music stars and uh, perpetually, perpetually. Yeah, and, and the funny thing about what we're doing is we're going to the end of his career or close to the end of his career yeah. mm-hmm. where my favorite things he did happened and that is usually exactly the opposite of what we're used to tonight ladies and gentlemen the one and only Johnny Cash and his first American record American recordings. I think it's it is kind of funny that this is the third album. Well, if you don't count the album War with Sunvolt and Wilco, you can count that as one. It's the third episode where we've gone into the '90s 
<laughs> We're talking about an artist who started his career in 1953. <laughs> well, Tony S. called being old. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to pretend like we're up on things, uh, but we are talking about Johnny Cash, whose career started in the 50s. Tony, speaking of his uh, career, how did this all start? This particular album? Or no, uh, Johnny Cash. Um, <laughs> well... Uh, it's funny. I, um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know how deep we were going to go into his career because I figured pe- most people know about him. So yeah, well, at least they know the Hollywood version. Yeah. The main thing is he started out a country boy picking cotton and singing in the cotton fields with a beautiful tenor voice. And then mm-hmm. he got to, uh, about 12 or 13 and his beautiful tenor was gone. And... <laughs> His mom commented on his baritone voice, and she said, that's something else. And when she was she was right. I think one of the themes tonight will be that this album is extremely successful because it cleared out the room to make room for Johnny Cash's voice, which any producer that thinks that they don't need to create a bunch of room for his voice uh, should get out of the studio. Well, that's one of the things. When he was first signed to Sun Records, he was one of the first people signed. Or maybe one of the last people signed. There weren't that many people signed to Sun Records. But he uh, that's one of the things that Sam Phillips instantly recognized was that he needed to uh, have Johnny Cash's voice front and center with very sparse um, backing instrumentation. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio When I was just a baby my mama told me, son, always be a good boy. And that's one of the things where Johnny Cash never felt like, even when he was working with Cowboy Jack Clement, uh, he always felt like he overdid the production on his albums. Well, that's a crime with, with his voice. And yeah, the, um, Jam, I am, as you know, I'm a hip. Uh, most, I mostly listen to rap and Carly D and stuff like that. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about uh, Sun Records? Well, Sun Records was formed in Memphis, Tennessee. It started off uh, as a recording studio. Sam Phillips was the person responsible for creating it. And uh, they would do some recordings in the evenings, but in the uh, afternoons, and early evenings, you could go in there and you could make a recording of uh, just a like a a letter. What we would just call like a text. Uh, they didn't have text messages back then. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so you could actually go in and make a, a record where you would just make it be a spoken word thing. You could send it to your grandmother or something in Arkansas or across the country or across the world, and it would just be your voice on a recording. Um, and he, one day, a person by the name of Elvis Presley came in, and he wanted to record a song for his mother, and uh, Sam Phillips heard this Elvis Presley's voice and decided, holy crap, we got, we got a 
white boy that sounds black and he didn't let that go and he instantly instantly decided he was going to start uh, recording Elvis and uh, he went on to bring in a lot of other people like Roy Orbertson, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins. Uh, he was actually convinced that Carl Perkins was going to be a bigger hit than Elvis, but Carl Perkins got in an accident. And among the la one of the people that he uh, brought in was young Johnny Cash in the Tennessee Two. It's a pretty remarkable studio, and that's uh, in Memphis, where I believe you spent some time. Yes, I did. I've actually been to never the, made a record there. Though. Never made a record, but I actually was uh, at a recording session one time there. Were you playing? Uh, I was nice. I was not playing anything. I just actually got to watch. Well, that's a little bit too much about you. Now back to Johnny. <laughs> Tony, you picked this. Um, you picked this. This is your pick. It is. And uh, I tried so hard, and I and I'm, I'm disappointed for those of you that are holding a glass of beer in front of you right now. But I tried really hard, Tony, and I could not find any jangly guitars or any power pop. Um, are people just not going to be able to drink it all tonight? No, unless we disparage the bassist. Uh, <laughs> but there's no bass on this album no either. Uh, no, it, it's it, it's um this this album came out at a time, Doug, when I was uh, not really listening to a whole lot of pop, with few exceptions. I mean, I still listen to it, power pop, but I was uh, so there's a couple of shots if someone wants to take them, but I. Uh, <laughs> I, I was really getting into um, traditional country and what at the time was known as alternative country. So Uncle Tupelo, uh, Sunvolt, um, that that era, these guys. And I was I listened to that. I mean, it, to be honest with you, I listened to that a little bit anyway when I was when I was a teenager in high school. I listened to the Longriders, I listened to Jason and the Scorchers. Um, so I I wasn't um, I was already predisposed to like. Uh, people playing what was essentially traditional country music with a bit of a rock and roll slash punk tinge to it. Um, and then this came out around the same time and was being lauded in all the press and magazines of, that, that talked about that kind of music. Um, I, you know, of course, I'm not, an, I'm not a, a, a dope. I knew who Johnny Cash was. I didn't live in a cave. Um, um, but I'll freely admit at the time, um, I knew just kind of the, the, the greatest hit stuff. The, 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 I will say the, the thing that I loved about getting into that, that type of music was it made me go find, like dig into older traditional country stuff. I, I became a Bob Wills fan. stuff but i went deep diving because a particular band was singing his praises that i liked and i was like i just okay i gotta go find this out um um tony yes sir there's some people out there young people particularly that are not familiar with bob wills 
that actually live in the state of Texas. <laughs> should they be kicked out? I think so. I think that should be part of the uh, statehood quiz. If you don't know who Bob Wills is, uh, there's there's something phenomenal. My daughters know who Bob Wills is. So. Well, all, all, all like people with proper yeah. proper parents. I mean, it's... If, My kids have actually the seen embarrassment of having your children at church say something. Here's Bob Wills out loud. Oh, it'd be bad. My kids have actually seen some of the Playboys, uh, original Playboys play too. Well, not well, original but late era original late era, Playboys. Yeah. 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 Well, there's a lot of the original ones are on the other side now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, once again, we've been distracted by the Texas Playboys. <laughs> Bob Wills always takes us off. That's my fault, by the way. Well, um, it's easy to do that. Yeah. So, Johnny Cash was at a pretty low point in his career. Yeah. Up to this point, yeah. Nobody's, this is before the movie came out, right? Yeah, but... So but He wasn't cool yet? Well, he, he was sort of. I mean, to be fair, Rick Rubin didn't just pull him out of the ashes. Um, Who's Rick Rubin? Well, we'll talk about him in a minute, but okay, I just want to... has to wonder. Yeah, they got to wonder, because I just want to say, before this album came out, which, you know, the the conventional wisdom is this this saved his career or restarted it, rebooted it. Um, there was a... Um, and I wrote it down and I left it at home, but there was a, uh, a group of uh, musicians uh, from the UK, including some guys from the Mekons and some other sort of post-punk bands that put out a Johnny Cash tribute album. It was a benefit album for an AIDS charity in 1988. Um, and then U2 had him sing the final track on their Zootopia It's a weird track because it's John, it's Johnny Cash singing a song. Uh, he's uh, this, the the uh, protagonist of the song is a preacher, and he's walking around through a post-apocalyptic world. You know, sort of talking about the way things have gone and 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 yearning for things that have passed. But the underlying music track is sort of this electronica, weird like electronic <coughs> bass, and you know, it's a U two song. Yeah, and um, it's produced by. Brian Eno, and uh, and he wanted you know, Bono to sing it. Or, yeah, he wanted Grammy singing it. And I heard that there were something like he the, they had to edit it down because there were, Bono had written so many lyrics for him to sing that they they actually just used it fraction. Well, and and what I think what what is interesting in context for the album we're talking about talking about that song, which is called "The Wanderer of Zootopia." is it was written by Bono. Bono only heard Johnny Cash singing it. So it was written by somebody else um, who had an idea of what Johnny Cash is about. And there's a couple of songs on this album that I think fall into that play. And I like, I mean, I, I like the songs, but they fall into almost sort of a surface level understanding or, or this mythological understanding of who Johnny Cash was. And I think Bono had that same thing when they wrote uh, when he wrote that song for him. Um, yeah. You know, that's why people hear it and they say, "Oh, that sounds like Johnny Cash." Because I think other people fall into into that. It's it's easy to myth myth. Apologize. Yes, yeah. thank you, yeah. thank you. That's why he's our producer. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, and also the album is uh, 
Zootopia, not Zootopia. Oh, thank you. Zootopia <laughs> is the kids' movie. That's, I was way out of YouTube by the time that album came out. So, sorry. I think Zootopia is... Well, I was confused when you said that uh, Bono was long-winded about something. <laughs> Johnny Cash was at the nadir of his career here. He had just been dropped from Columbia... Well, he was dropped in Columbia. He was dropped in Columbia um, in the late, like '86. Was it '86? '86, and then he okay. was signed to '80s, Mer- '90s. It's all of us. Signed to Mercury, yeah. and Mercury ignored him. Yeah, they didn't know what the hell they, to they do actually, with him. There was a like he did a remake album that was actually pretty good. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire Went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire What happened with Johnny Cash was that he was just so oversaturated and he was uh i mean you, you this album the american recordings is his 81st album no jeez that's incredible and if you that, think I mean, about it's that it's just unbelievable and i just think that there's just they were just putting out um just fluff for him to sing and he was singing things that he really had no business no business singing did he well, really I, i've got a yeah, I gotta interrupt because you talk about the chicken in black. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about. I always find the things I say to be the most interesting things when I listen to these podcasts, and this is no exception. <laughs> um, the uh, of of the of the people we have done before, of Ray Charles, Ray Charles. Uh, situation. You know the same. Um, what, what you talked about with the overexposure of too many albums coming oh. out, and then with the the problems with the drugs, and uh, yeah. then this this uh, you can't pin Ray down in a genre, and Johnny Cash started out in no man's land. I mean, yeah, he, he was yeah. was he rock and roll? Well, yeah, was dream on, dream on, rockabilly type of stuff. Yeah, country. Nope. And he never settled into a track, which I appreciate very much. But yeah. he did remind me a lot of Ray Charles. The stories well, were so similar. And they did seem to have uh, uh, problems with loyalty to women, I, which I'm glad to say none of us have uh, really had that. Uh, that's true. I, I think and that though, should be emphasized. Um, I think the thing we're talking around on this podcast is where country music was in the 80s. And also the fact, I, but I'm a huge Buck Owens fan. He may be my favorite country singer ever. I love more than the guy. Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, more than Jimmy <laughs> Buffett. I love Buck Owens. I love the Buck Reason. Buck Owens said one time that he, when he was when he was going when he was going to be doing uh, Hee Haw, he said he saw what television had done to the mystique of Johnny Cash. He took it away. It robbed him of yeah. that mystique. And that he because knew, of his show, just because he was so he was everywhere. People no right. longer had the kind of the mystery of the man in black, yeah. and um and and the same. And he felt the same way going into Hee Haw. I think though, what happened in the eighties was country music was embracing this sort of this horrible, horrible um, 
what what was that movie with John Travolta? Urban Cowboy. Urban Cowboy sound. The closer you get, oh baby, the further I fall. I'll be over the edge now, in no time at all. I'm falling faster and faster and faster, with no time to stall. In that in that particular time in the eighties, yeah. um, and they but did country not. Country music is, um, it has outdone that horrible era with an even worse era now. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I yeah. just want to make sure we weren't short thrifting. I know, but it is today's country. Music it is amazing. Occasionally, someone will slide in, like Dwight Dwight Yoakam will slide in with a hit, and it's yeah. like, how did that happen? You know. And from, um, I mean, nothing in common with the people that are on the but, station. Exactly. <laughs> but so at this time period, country stations weren't, weren't playing the people who made country what it was. They weren't doing, I mean, they were ignoring people like Merle, Willie. Um, they were ignoring Johnny Cash, uh, yeah. Ray Price. No, who's he? You know, according to that stuff, so nobody knew who any of these people were. They were still making stuff. George Jones, they were still making albums. But the radio stations and the country, quote-unquote, country music buying public were ignoring them. Here's what's fascinating about this album we're talking about tonight. When it came out, it was classified as alternative. It wasn't even classified as country music. I guess that has something to do with the producer. Well, it did. I mean, and we can talk about... It also has something to do with the idea that country music at this time was a very polished and... um, yeah, glossy product. It, it, it was. And I think that's something that we will probably touch on a couple of times throughout this episode tonight. Rick Rubin not only, and we're going to talk about him in a minute, not only got this ball rolling, but he was a genius marketer. I mean, yeah. he marketed this whole concept in this album in a way. And I think part of that was saying this is alternative. Having him play places like like emos here yeah. or the Viper Room in L.A. I mean, those those are cl- country clubs. Those are places where you know alternative bands, country. punk bands, whatever. I saw him at the at emos at when it, um, the com- at, that's why we can actually uh, say while we're experts. Why, why we're experts? Well, on this also, did you notice how quickly J.M. made this about himself? I know he keeps <laughs> doing that. He keeps going back to himself. Uh, but uh, I, I think that 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 you know the context of this. It wasn't just that this guy was not that he was creatively bankrupt. Um, it was the fact that even if he had been writing songs that were uh, were as good as um, as the stuff he previously released, country music fans weren't going to listen to it, or at least the the, the ones well, listening to it. They're going to get a chance to listen to it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, okay, who's going to tell us about Rick Rubin? I- he sees Johnny Cash at the Bob Dylan's 50th birthday celebration at Madison. Rick Rubin is a pretty hip producer at this point. Uh, sing a Bob Dylan song and is kind of enamored and says, hey, this guy's still got some life left in him. Well, the, the thing the thing about Rick Rubin is, um, so the one thing we didn't talk about about Johnny Cash at the time, and I think it's important as well because it puts you in his mindset, he was pretty much playing the county fair circuit as well as he was, he had basically gone whole, like whole hog into a theater in Bransom. They were going to build a a theater in Bransom for him, Bransom, Missouri called cash country. 
and he was part of that. And for some reason, the deal fell through, and it ended up being the the, the Wayne Newton Theater. But he was he he was still offered, <laughs> yeah, he was still offered the gigs, and because the money was so good, according to him, he couldn't pass it up. So he was he he hated the fact that his stature had him playing at, as a kind of a a you know a, a has been gig in Bransom. So he's playing a gig in L.A. Um, a place called the, or I'm sorry, in Santa Ana, a place called the Rhythm Cafe, and that's where Rick Rubin decides he wants to go talk to him. He says, "I, I need, to, I need to go talk to this guy." So someone, someone goes to Cash and says, "Hey, there's this guy that wants to talk to you," um, and uh, and and so he goes back there. And I love this. Uh, Cash says he's the ultimate hippie, bald. Had hair down to past his shoulders, shoulder, yeah. and a beard that looked like he'd never been trimmed. And this is the greatest thing he said. Cash says he looked like he wore, or he had he wore clothes that, that would have done a wino proud. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, t- Rick Rubin was the guy who uh, founded um, Def, Jam. Def Jam Records in his college room when he was going to uh, NYU. Um, he got interested in rap. He was he was into punk and metal early on, but he got interested in rap and the local rap scene. So he started. He's he he before Def Jam. He did a he in '83. He produced a single called "It's Yours" by Tila Rock and Jazzy J. And it got some local success. Anyway, so he said, I'll, I'll give this record producing stuff a go. And he, he started Def Jam Records. And then Russell Simmons, who is already kind of making a name for himself, decides to join Ruben with Def Jam. And so they start collecting these tapes. And in 84, they put out their first hit, which is an LL Cool J song called I Need a Beat. And it sold 100,000 copies. When it got up to 300,000 copies, Columbia Records came a calling <laughs> and said, hey, we'd like to get in on this. And so they became kind of a subsidiary of Columbia Records. And they started, they, they got the Beastie Boys, they got Public Enemy, they got Run DMC. He was actually part of that when Run DMC did their Aerosmith, that, that crossover. Oh, I liked thing. the guy before I learned all this. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, he ended up leaving Def Jam in 88 and started um, and moved to L.A. and started Deaf American Recordings. And his first two acts or one of his first two acts on that were Slayer and um, uh, Danzig. 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 Yeah. Uh, who, if for those of you know, we'll talk about Glenn Danzig in a, me- in a minute or later. But Glenn Danzig was in the, in the he was in the Misfits. Yeah. Which is a. I don't know. Are they punk? Are they are they metal? They're kind of a are they like a rockabilly metal band? They're they're anyway. I'm probably the only guy in the room who likes the Misfits. But uh, so in '93 he drops the Death and it just becomes American Recordings and that's when he decides he wants to go hook up with Johnny Cash after seeing him and talking to him and that's when they have that backroom meeting where Cash says he'd done a wino proud he'd do a wino proud. <laughs> 
Um, interesting enough, in 2007, uh, he be, he was named co-chairman of Columbia Records because um, Sony, uh, which was I guess the parent company of Columbia, um, thought that he would bring a new outlook. They were their sales were lagging. He thought they'd bring a new outlook to it, um, and they uh, he almost immediately started clashing with the radio, with the record executives. But the, so the conventional wisdom is this guy got cash at this moment, as you said, JM, at this yeah. low point in his career and, and got him, got people interested in him again. Yeah. And the, the idea was he just, he said that your voice is amazing and uh, let's just record a whole bunch of record or a whole bunch of songs, uh, kind of your choice of yeah. things that you want to do. That's and, what he did. He said, come up to my house. We'll sit you in front of a of a, a, a mic with your guitar, and you just yeah. play whatever the hell you want. That to play. sounds that sounds like what made it possible is they both wanted the same thing. That's what that's what Johnny Cash wanted, and that's what um, yeah. Wanted. yeah, they yeah. both wanted the same thing, and and uh, they recorded over two hundred songs with just Johnny Cash and his guitar. Yeah, yeah, and I'm. James gonna have to help me with the guitar part because this is this album is Johnny Cash and his guitar period. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the other they did other work with the Heartbreakers on it. Yeah. yeah. And, and 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 some really cool albums followed this one. I guess there were five in all. Is that correct? I think there were four. There were four studio albums before he died. Always correcting. And before he died, and then they released a two two posthumous. Yeah. Yeah. And then they also did a like a box set collection of stuff yeah. like odds and sods yeah. that they had done. The, um, uh, but this is just Johnny Cash and the guitar, and to me the guitar playing s- sounds really good. And he's just a guy that plays with his thumb. Yeah. So I'm a little bit confused by. Well, you're going to be one of the first people. I mean, I don't have a problem with the guitar playing either, but if you get online and read about this album, there's plenty of people that that, that don't like it and they just say this well, is it's, a, it's, it's not, a vo- this is a vocalist album. It's not good. And <laughs> well, I, I didn't mean to say that it was This is it sounds It sounds better than passable. No, it sounds better than a guy with his thumb. And I'm, yeah. I'm this is me in my little corner that no one else cares about thinking how does a guy do that with just his thumb? So, um, I'm sorry, Jay, but make it cl- cleared up for me. I don't think it's, I mean, his guitar playing is almost uh, adequate. I, I would almost say adequate. I mean, it's warts and all. I mean, there's places, there's actually a, a, a song where he misses a whole chord and jumps <laughs> back to it. And there's places where the, uh, he doesn't hit the, the, um, uh, the chord all the way through, and it, it, but you know it, it's it's like watching Johnny Cash at a campfire. But Jay that's not that's not so the focus of this album. It's right. not his it's guitar not his playing. Guitar playing. <laughs> well, and, and he's, if he's, anybody, if we can replay the tape, I did admit that this is me going into my little uh, corner. No, no, no. I, set, I listen. Set. I I I think that people. I'm. A, I was a little surprised. There's a whole lot of. Um, uh, hindsight about this album now. When it came out, people loved it and gave it, you know, all sorts of accolades. And now, however many years later, this is what is this? Almost uh, thirty years later? No, twenty they're years. Backing off twenty years later. They're backing off and saying, "Oh, it's this, this, this." You know, "Oh, it's it's not his best work. This is not a masterpiece." Um, I personally think this album is brilliant. From, I mean, from I mean, it's, there's maybe one miss, and it's barely a miss. 
Um, I don't know if we'll agree on the same song. It's a miss, but I I think this album is fantastic. I think his voice on it sounds great, and that's really the whole purpose of this. And 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 uh, so what we do here, and and maybe we don't talk about this enough, is when we pick an album, it's you know there's a story around it, which we all we all kind of as as these podcasts have progressed, we've gotten more and more into that, which I think is good. At least we yeah. like talking about it. I don't know if people like listening to it, but we like talking about it. Hope but if you the, don't like it, you should send us an email and tell us about that's it. That's right. We'll criticize you on there. Um, I mean, we'll, 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 <laughs> but the other thing it. is, we try to pick albums that submachine. Yeah, we try to pick albums that have a, a cohesiveness to them, that have something to them. And this album has that. It has that. It was it was put down. I I I know what you said, Doug. He recorded all these songs with just him and the guitar. But they chose what they were going to put on this. There's yeah. a purpose to the sequencing on this album. There's a purpose to the songs they picked. No, it's, um, it's clearly. And it's, it's it's there's a theme running through. Yeah. It. And it's things like he we'll does. We'll get to later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does, it, and it goes from the gambit. It goes from like even the the you know the. Carter family days to you know you mentioned dancing that that was a song that was specifically written and I think Tom I only listen to Megan Three Stallion I don't know <laughs> who the Carter family is well the Carter uh, Carter family they were kind of country music royalty they were not kind of they were they, car, they were country they were music country royalty music. <laughs> and Johnny Cash married into that family. responsible for recording some of the greatest country tunes ever made and uh, they actually setting the whole thing on it you put yeah. carter family and then you follow that up with hank williams and well and yeah. and he and 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 the, and the woman he married june carter uh, uh the reason johnny i firmly believe the reason johnny cash could make this album in uh 1993 or 94 is because she kept him alive well, I was going to say that. I was hoping you were going to say something else because uh, I was going to follow it up and say, well, that's the only reason he was alive. <laughs> and then I would be smarter than you. But um, <laughs> but he also... That's exactly right. No, she kept... She, and that's what Chris Christopherson said. Yeah, she saved him. So we're able to listen to this amazing piece of music and, because... And her. Point, right before this and album... In fact, she died before him. Yeah, blows my mind. Yeah, and he died pretty soon after. But he... Uh, that doesn't blow my mind. Yeah. <laughs> He uh, actually had relapsed a little bit um, during this. Okay, so anyway, when Johnny Cash got started with Sun Records and was touring all the time, he had uh, doctors prescribing him some pills to help him stay awake on the road and some other pills to help him go Go to to sleep. sleep. And uh, that became his routine along with some um, beverages, unlike the uh, spring water that J.M.'s drinking. Was um, drinking. Was drinking. <laughs> it's like yes, which anyway, uh, and just like it's it's another one of those stories uh, that Eric Clapton or uh, uh, Ray Charles. It's another one where you go, how did this guy make it? Yeah, well, and uh, I think well, it was he, Carter Cash. Yeah, and he, he, he had, had this guy had nine before. lives. Yeah, <laughs> he he got down to about two pounds and uh, <laughs> was uh, prohibited from seeing his children up and uh, yeah. California with his first wife is just sad, sad story, which is 
a pretty important part of this album, a pretty par- important part of Johnny Cash's life is that it's, it's a story of redemption, and uh, he's a very uh, religious man, and... Uh, he struggles and, with his demons, and had struggled uh, in his entire have, life. You have, I think, to be a deeply religious person, and to be a thankful uh, religious person, you have to have struggled with demons, or the whole idea of the redemption means nothing to you. No, I, I, People I, I, have their act together. So Jesus said, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. And Johnny Cash certainly qualifies. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the, the idea of redemption is a little hollow if you're not, if you're not struggling mightily with that. Or it's not even attractive to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember back when I was a sinner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Totally. <laughs> I didn't even go back before the beginning of the podcast. But uh, I, I, are we I, ready to jump in and talk about the record a little bit? Yeah, we yeah. We'll, I, I, we'll tie it up some at the end um, with some cool uh, Tony's. Tony has some cool tidbits. Tony's tidbits, which we all love. Uh, we'll get on to that uh, here shortly. The first one is uh, got. Is it daily? Delia. Delia's gone. Delia's gone. in her parlor, and I tied her to her chair. Delia's gone. One more round. Delia's gone. She was low down and trifling, and she was cold and mean. Kind of evil make me want to. The theme of country music is. Men gunning down the women they love. And then missing them. Well, this song, though, has a real long history to it. Well, it's written in, it came out first in 62 or something? Well, actually, it's based loosely on the murder of Delia Green. And there's several other Delias out there that are also based on this young teenager's murder. She was of African-American descent, and she was murdered by her teenage lover in Savannah on Christmas Eve in 1900. And so, I don't even know anyone named Dela, and you're telling me there's all these people out there getting killed named Dela? No, this person was named Delia, Delia Green, and she got killed. And so uh, there's lots of versions of this song out there. Pete Seeger has a version of it that sounds... On his little banjo? I'm just telling you. That must be strange. Well, all I'm telling you is that this song uh, has a history to it, and there's several. There were several blues musicians, lots of blind so and sos that wrote, <laughs> <laughs> that wrote, wrote versions of of songs based on that murder. <laughs> so, um, one of us ought to be. So what what's what's interesting about what you brought up about the cash version that was recorded in when was that 62? 62 yeah. Um it it's got different lyrics. They oh, re- really? Yeah, they reworked some of the lyrics on it. Um the the way it ends it says now uh, now give me a hammer and I'll drag the ball and chain um and every rock I bust will ring out Delia's name. That's how it ends instead of well, instead I, of the I way like that. instead of the way this song ends which is if your woman's devilish, you can let her run, or you can bring her down to her like Delia got done. It's a little bit different. This song doesn't quite the the person in this song doesn't quite have this 
the guilt of what he did. I mean, he does yeah. hear her feet pitter pattering, yeah. but it's and not the same. It's not the same yeah. as the uh, the guy in the '62 version of it, which really feels he feels the weight of being in prison over this death, and he feels the guilt yeah. of it. Yeah. I'm not sure why Cash changed it for this newer version. It's it's um it's humorous to me. This song has a humorous element to it that is is well, they first, yeah, I mean, but then there's it's almost it's uh graphic. I don't know how I don't know how he's not Yeah, I don't know how that's not supposed to be like that's not meant to be funny that line. Mm-hmm. First time I shot her, I shot her in the side. Hard to watch her suffer so the second with the second shot she died. Yeah. That's not that's not someone who's feeling remorse over what he did it's someone kind of bragging about it but in a jokey sort of way yeah. it's 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 odd um uh, this song for me it created such a huge level of curiosity about yeah. the other 200 songs that aren't on this album and this one is yeah well, I, I have no love for this song. i'll tell you and johnny's cash's voice can't even pull it i'll up. tell you why this song's it. on here because Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash are sitting in the in the living room listening to this stuff, and and Rick Rubin is again this whole myth of Cash. He's like, "Where's the guy who shot someone just to watch him die? Where's that guy?" Yeah, you get this song because that's what you want. It's part of the we we're trying to make Cash this guy, edgy. this man in black, this edgy guy who shot someone just to watch him die. And we're talking about Folsom Prison Blues for those of you who don't know that. Yeah, I hope you. And do, if you but. don't know that, um, <clears throat> you should. Thank you for listening because yes. it's you're helping yourself out so much. But so I, I'm I'm almost I, I almost guarantee you that's where the the desire to put this song on this album and I think put that's it a first. Good explanation and I didn't think of it. And there's something else I have to say about this song, and then I'm gonna be quiet about this song. Um, to me, this song is in the company of "Live and Let Die" and um, "Meatloaf's." Two out of three aren't bad. Ain't bad. Ain't bad. Excuse me. <laughs> always, and, always correcting him, JM. I know. It's just <laughs> poor guy. A victim. Just a victim. I'm just a victim of my stories. Anyway, um, I'm just a producer. <laughs> my stories seldom tell. In what? And so, in what, what do what? those two songs have in common? Yeah. Some of the worst lines ever written in <laughs> rock and roll. In Live and Let Let Die, we have. In this world, in this crazy world in, in which, which we live in, why did you say that? That we in live which in. We live in. Well, it's crazy it sounds like world he's trying to write something for his English teacher. So what's the uh, what's the line in this one? And the line in uh, Meatloaf is, "There ain't no Coupe de Ville hiding at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box," <laughs> which is so bad it's art. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and the one on this one is. Kind of evil makes we want to grab my submachine. My submachine. That's that's a new line for I this do. version. Yeah, I know. that version wasn't in the older version. I was not telling you what. That, that that did just kind of my submachine. Yeah, that's that means that the producer was intimidated by Johnny Cash because he didn't say, "Okay, listen, let's not do it because we got something." We're not going to think we're in a log cabin, yeah, in the woods, and there's no submachine guns. And wait, wait, and just don't say submachine. That doesn't. Well, he, and he, he doesn't say machine. He says machine. Anyway, <laughs> I, really, that's the only thing I wanted to get I, done tonight is talk about Johnny Cash's amazing artist, and that line is horrible. I I like the song. I like but, the song, but I but, but having, I like women. 
I will say this about this song. Having learned the history of it and having learned that, that, that it's loosely based on a real event and that this yeah. song is so um, sarcastically repentant, if it is repentant at all, yeah. made me feel a little bit different about it. It makes me feel dirty now that I know the song. I, before, I just hated that one line. Yeah. But I, all these songs about um, just outlaw killing people, I get well, unlike unlike the redheaded stranger, where you can feel sympathy, even though it's a horrible act, you can feel sympathy for it because he walks in and they're just having the time of their lives with a big smile on their face, and they think this guy is nothing. What happened? They died with the smiles on their face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's it's a different feel. You're right. There's not. It's hard to feel sympathy. Well, yeah, you can't not, feel sympathy not, for this you guy. Know, like uh, Banks of the Ohio. There's there's. Uh, all sorts of songs about uh, but, gunning women down. and. Uh, well, maybe this was also Rick Rubin uh, not able to shake his rap roots either, you know? Yeah, that's true. Well, that's true. Now that I know he has rap in his background, I've got yeah. serious questions about his character. Um, <laughs> this, this song is followed up by Let the Train Blow the Whistle. The train has left the station If you're there or not I may not even know Have a round and remember Things we did that weren't so tender Let the train blow the whistle when I go On my old guitar sell tickets So someone can finally pick it And tell the girls down at the Ritz I said hello Tell the gossipers and liars I will see them in the fire Let the train blow the whistle when I go Let her blow, let her blow Long and loud and hard and I love this song. Who wrote this? Johnny Cash wrote this. And it's a good song. It's a great song. And I want this, this played. I want this played on my recording. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I think it's the first time. I want this played at my funeral. I was pleasantly surprised how many of these songs were written by Johnny Cash. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point to make. But because I, th- I think in the in the in the uh, national conscience of people who are conscious of people who know this album, they think it's all covers or people yep. wrote songs for him. I don't think people know he wrote what five songs on this album. Yeah, yeah. they're. Uh, None of the ones. Well, he wrote. De- he co-wrote Delia. So. They're all on the. They're all above the fifty percent line, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. It's a good song. But I, I just to repeat what I said, in case you guys didn't hear it, I'm going to talk to my wife about having this played at my funeral. I love this song. I want it at my funeral. It's a good song. Well, I'll look forward to that, Tony. Well, well I mean, but it also sounds like <laughs> it's from another time, which I always like when people write songs that sound like they're well and there's there's lots of people that say that say that his his songs on this album aren't as strong as it the covers or the songs that were written for him i think this song flies absolutely in the face of that the lyrics are great that 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 line on on this album that line that's the first thing that no regrets all my debts will get paid when i get laid i love that i have a problem with that line why is that um, it's it would it's so easy to fix that line. Okay. Instead of saying I get laid, my body gets laid. No regrets, all my debts will get paid when my body gets laid. It doesn't have the same flow to it. Doesn't have the same flow. Okay. 
something besides me getting laid because <laughs> I don't know if y'all know about the vernacular of the younger I do but that but doesn't I, matter because that's not what the song's again, about it comes from another time yeah it's like saying gay back in the 1920s this, I think that line's fine you don't need to fix that line because uh, yeah, what I'll we're talking I never I never heard that song in the context or that line in the context of the song I thought it was talking about something other than him I didn't need it but I was thinking come on yeah. I get laid that means this and it, Not in this I, it context. Me, it sounds, I know it doesn't, but it sounds like I got a rhyme, and I'm going to say get laid. Uh, that's a weird way to say buried. And uh, <laughs> But I love the idea that it's like, you know what? Once I'm gone... I won't know if you miss me or not. Yeah. I won't. All anything I'm that's hanging over my head yeah. is gone. You know, five more minutes. I'll I mean, I remember the first time I heard it going. What the hell is he talking about? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah it's a good song. Yeah, I know exactly what he's talking yeah. about. The very first time I heard well, it. Well, I was running. I, I the was first just time saying, I heard it. I just fix that, please. <laughs> All right, I'm being picky again. You're being right. picky. You're being. I, I like, uh, this isn't Randy Newman. I'm sorry. Uh, Tony's going to read some mail to us later about what ass I am. <laughs> the uh, the next song, I I oh. found this extremely interesting. This is a great song. This is a great song. This is a song that touches on the theme I mentioned earlier about how only the uh, sick need a redeemer. Um, this is uh, The Beast in Me. The Beast in Me Has had to learn to live with pain And how to shelter from the rain And in the twinkling of an eye Might have to be restrained God help beast in me written by well why don't you tell us who wrote okay this, this, this song, is pretty this pretty song was written by someone who is no slouch himself as a songwriter nick Lowe. wait now, have we have we hit on nick Lowe before in any of our episodes i don't think I don't so we have i don't think so didn't we have an episode where we talked about uh, albums that that we think are underrated? Did we talk? Oh, about? we had Rock Pile. Oh, oh, that's who, right. That was a brilliant album. <laughs> Man, that, who brought that one up? Uh, I believe that was Doug. That Cooper. was Doug Cooper who brought yeah. up Rock Pile. I forgot about that. Oh, I'm so ashamed that I've made that about myself. <laughs> No, this guy, for those of you who don't know who Nick Lowe is, and you, you thank you for listening to the podcast. So, <laughs> uh, That's why we're here. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the, the reason why Doug's making such a, a, a big deal about this particular, uh, that he's on this particular album, or that Johnny Cash picked the song, is that he was Johnny Cash's son-in-law. Uh, he married Carlene Carter. They were married from 1979 to 1980. I'm sorry, 1979 to 1990. Yeah. Um, and what's what Nick Lowe talks about is is amazing to him is that Johnny Cash continued to be friendly with him after this, and it, this song was played. Um, Nick Lowe played sort of an unfinished version of the song to Johnny Cash and Carlin Carter. Um, I'm sorry, not Carlin Carter, Jim Carter, Carter Cash, and a bunch of. He said he goes. This is what he says. He goes. 
Uh, it brought in our entourage and I wasn't really finished. And uh, it, I was really embarrassed to play the song with with the roadies and nannies, June Carter Cash crammed in this little sitting room. That And I, I was so embarrassed, I never wanted to hear the song again. But Cash liked it and he didn't think, but he didn't think it was quite finished. So um, he's uh, Johnny Cash is playing at the Royal Albert Hall in England. And whenever he'd play in the UK, if, if it was anywhere close to Nick Lowe, he'd ask Nick Lowe to come on stage and sing a song with him. Now, Nick Lowe was former family, so that makes sense. But he's also a huge Johnny Cash fan, so he always felt really self-conscious about this. He's like, if I was watching Johnny Cash, the last thing I'd want to see is Nick Lowe get up and sing a song with him. I want to see Johnny Cash sing a song. But during that show, um, Johnny Cash asked him about that song, The Beast in Me, and and uh, Nick Lowe went home and knocked it off. He's that like That somehow spurred him to finish writing the song, and he knocked it off. I was just, it just well, he said, have it just you sort heard of Johnny Cash's voice? Yeah. He probably went, all right, son, I want you to go finish that song. But, but anyway, so uh, Nick, Nick Lowe recorded it on an album called Impossible Bird, and it's a great version of the song. Not that dissimilar to Johnny Cash's. It's and, not. It's very sparse. Yeah, yeah which, is, which is great because it's yeah. perfect. It has to be. It's perfect for what the song is about. And, and so he sends it. He sends that version to Johnny Cash, and Johnny Cash chooses to record it for this album. That's a um, fine, fine song. It, oh, it's got such great wordplay in it. Um, about it, the teddy bear. Oh, it's you just think the beast in you is a teddy and bear. And here's the thing about I love the Nick Lowe version, but the thing about Johnny Cash singing this song is it's his. Yeah. It's no, it's not a Nick Lowe song anymore, and he sings it with such conviction you're you're convinced that johnny cash is like relaying some ultimate truth about his his um well, it's entirely believable yeah you're thinking yeah. Well, duh yeah of course <laughs> if nick lowe said it i'm i'm sorry i don't have yeah. idea if this is you or yeah not, man. you don't look very scary with your little glasses <laughs> and your lovely white shock of white hair um and you play bass <laughs> good point Jim. Yeah. how about drive on drive on it don't mean nothing My children love me But they don't understand And I got a woman Who knows her man Drive on It don't mean nothing It don't mean nothing Drive on Well I remember one night texting There's a version of Songwriters Which is a VH1 program And he and Willie Nelson Are on it and he tells a story about this song. He says he and he and June Carter were reading a whole lot of books on Vietnam at the time. So I'm, it, it sounds like it's much later than you're right. You're right. It is. Um, I'm wrong. Yeah. And so he's right. He's right. They're reading all these all these uh, they're reading all these books about Vietnam, and he gets and gets fascinated by the lingo and what what and what would happen in Vietnam when you would have a soldier that you were friends with or just someone fighting next to you die. Yeah. You, you didn't have time to mourn because you could get shot. So they would say, drive on. It don't mean nothing. Drive on. You know, someone to lose their leg. It don't mean much. They just had to have that mindset so they could keep going forward. And he was just fascinated by that. And so he wrote this song with that point of view about a guy coming back and that his buddy doesn't come back. And so that's kind of the impetus of this is like, I can't, I can't wallow in that. Yeah. It's a pretty gut wrenching song. Well, it's spare and it's honest. And it's well, not dragging. It's not trying to extort feeling out of you. I, it's just telling you the bare bones of the story, which, of course, is tragic enough without any of the other uh, I think, embellishments. I think it was also done at a time where 
it was far enough removed from Vietnam that people were starting to talk a little bit more honestly well, about and, it. And the song covers that took them twenty five yeah, years to twenty five years to appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a great song. If I were Johnny Cash, I'd be mighty proud of yeah. myself for that's, that one. That's yeah. a fantastic song. Um, and uh, that reminds me, everybody ought to read the book, The Things We Carried about Vietnam, which has nothing to do with the podcast, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, next, this is a classic everybody uh, probably has heard of. Uh, Why Me, Lord? Why Me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord? What did I ever do that was worth love from you and the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus. I know what I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus. Uh, although it was record, it was originally when when Chris Christopherson recorded, it was just called "Why Me." That's true, and I've got the Jesus was a Capricorn right over there, and. Uh, and I think I told you last time when we were talking about this particular song, I mentioned that I'd seen on that Ken Burns documentary, Chris Christopherson talking about where this came from. And he had, I, I wish I could remember who convinced him to go to church. He was at a very low point in his life. Oh, yeah. And yeah, someone yeah, convinced yeah, him to yeah. go to church. And he goes to church, and the preacher, you know, he's at church, church and the preacher says, uh, Is anybody feeling lost? And for some reason, Chris Christopherson raises his hand. Yeah. And so he brings him up there. And he says, he puts, has a kneel in front of him and he says, are you ready? Accept Christ. And Chris Christopherson just started bawling. He just had this weird, this weird epiphany happen to him. And he left that and he went home and he wrote this song. He was trying to put into words this weird thing that happened to him that he couldn't put into words. Um, I think when you, when you listen to his version of it, it's a little lost and it, in his con- conveying that feeling and mainly because, and this, I really don't want to knock that knock him for this because he's an amazing songwriter. He does not have much of a voice. And when I you love put- his uh, lack of voice. I, I love his version. My problem with this uh, song is, um, this is not a light. It's not, Hey Jesus, thank you for right. inviting me to the party. It's not like that. It's, it's a gut-wrenching redemption song, and it's on Jesus was a Capricorn, and it it clashes so much with the rest of the album. You think, how could the same guy that's writing these other things... <laughs> it doesn't clash with this album. No, it's perfect for this, and it's perfect for Johnny Cash. It's Spock. absolutely course, perfect for him. These two have a long history. Um, yeah, we can't. we got to bring that up. we got to talk about... Uh, speaking of Vietnam... Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we got Chris Christopherson, who is a helicopter pilot, right. who had a from Texas, by the way, which is another reason uh, he's we're experts. Yeah, Texas, which is another reason we're experts on this. Um, he landed in Johnny Cash's yard in his helicopter and handed him sending a cassette tape with his song on it. Sunday morning coming down. On the Sunday morning sidewalk. Wish 
our stone Cause there's something in a Sunday Makes a body feel alone And there's nothing short of dying Half as lonesome as the sound Johnny Cash ended up recording more than a few of his songs, and uh, actually his voice is perfect for so many of Chris Christopherson's songs. <laughs> what about this song, 13? Got the number 13 tattooed on my neck. When the ink starts to itch, then the black will turn to red I was born in the soul of misery Never had me a name They just gave me the number when I was young Good song. I'd have. I was it about. I can't figure out what it's about. It's about slave trading. No, it's about a guy who. Uh, it's sort of that same con conceit that a boy named Sue is, right? It's about a guy, a kid who was as he's got bad luck, but he's also raised as a as a somebody who embodies bad luck. Huh? You know? Yeah. Um, it, yeah uh, he has a tattooed on his neck. Yeah. It's a Glenn Danzig song. We talked about him earlier. Glenn Danzig said he. Uh, this is a great story. Someone, someone from well, someone from Rick Rubin's office called him and said, "Do you know who Johnny Cash is?" He's like, uh, "Yeah," because uh, if, if you again, if you listen to any Misfits, you know that this is a guy who was a big Elvis fan. He liked all this rockabilly stuff, so he knew. It. And he's like, "Yeah, I know who Johnny Cash is." And he said, "Would you write a song for him?" And he knocked us out in like twenty minutes to a half yeah, an hour. Yeah, so I heard it's twenty minutes. He um, and and what what bothers me about people who've had that kind of hindsight is twenty twenty take on this album, I've heard people say it sounds like it was written twenty minutes. No way. I don't think it sounds like no. that at all. This I is a great song. song. I couldn't write that song in well, I'm sure you use a guitar. Just <laughs> <laughs> it, even coming up with the idea. It sounds very much like now again, I wanna I wanna go back to something I said earlier about this kind of writing a song like like Bono did, writing a song with this idea of who Johnny Cash is and saying this is that's, for you. That's what this, this is. This is like, what yeah. this is. Yeah. But it sounds like a modern version of something that Cash would have written when he was doing that himself. Because he did that a lot when he was yeah. when he was, you know, writing songs, Man in Black being a perfect example of no, that. He, he uh, characterized himself. Yeah. And this yeah. just sounds like a more modern version of that, but um I love this song. I think it's great. I think oh, it's yeah, a great I song. Great. I think it's one of the better songs on the album. Oh, bury me not. Lord, I've never lived where churches grow. I love creation better as it stood. That day you finished it so long ago And looked upon your work and called it good This is an old, old I song And I, it, it, uh, I, Alan Lomax and John Lomax get the uh, Main writing credit, credit. But, um, Roy Rogers also gets partial writing credit for it <laughs> That's right Because <laughs> it uh, you know, starts off with the Cowboy's Prayer I yep. guess. And 
Um, so the recording of this, I, the, almost everything here, you can pinpoint the dates when it was recorded, but this is one of the ones where you can't really pinpoint when it was actually set down. This, this sounds more than anything else on this album, like Johnny Cash saying, I want to do this. This is a song I want well, to do. Well, he did have that period where he was going around in his Western gear singing uh, true songs of the Old West and uh, well, I think, perpetuating that mythology. But, and this is an album that, I mean, this is a song he'd done before. If I'm yeah, right. maybe. I, yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but it, doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me. But it no, does sound like... he did. He, it was a 65 album that he said. It's songs of the Old West. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but it does sound like this is one of the songs where when Rick Rubin said just just play what you want what you want to do he said you know what I'm yeah, gonna I'm gonna redo it. this and I'm gonna do the cowboy prayer in front of it yeah you know it's it, it it's, works it works it works it works, yeah. it works. all right I've always liked this song even though I, like I uh, disagree with uh, the underlying message but uh, bird on the wire like a bird. On a wire Like a drunk In a midnight choir I have tried In my way To be free Like a fish On a hook so is this where I can throw in my old adage <laughs> I mentioned earlier? I, I just want to say that Leonard Cohen is <laughs> my uh, father's favorite uh, musician of all times. He absolutely loved Leonard Cohen. Uh, he's uh, they're together now, and yeah. uh, but um, he's probably designing an album cover. Well, now he, he's probably saying, "Play that one again." Well, now the heaviness of that, I don't know if I can say my whole adage. <laughs> well, maybe we can get Jam to talk about himself. <laughs> All I was going to say is I have this I have this old adage that uh, Leonard Cohen songs are much better when they're not sung by Leonard Cohen. I, I think that this is an example where he's, this song is sung better by Johnny Cash than Leonard Cohen. and I, I But I'm a production guy. When I hear Leonard Cohen's version of it it sounds thin i don't like leonard's leonard cohen's voice during this period i liked it when it became much deeper and uh, uh the guy could write a song my god he could write a song he, he could write a song again he's not one of the best people if you ever hear him interview just look back on some of his interviews when he because he also wrote poetry he also wrote novels uh it just his ex this song is poetry. Yeah, it is. It is. And but he he explains like why does he why does something become a song versus a poem? And he's got the greatest explanation I've ever heard of that. It's just about how the words look on a page. They just don't if they don't look right on the page, he says I'm going to turn it into a song because by this if I turn it into a song, it's going to be huh. um it's going to have more meaning. He says it's just not going to have as much meaning just lying on a page. I don't know. That's this, interesting. I don't understand that at all. This, but I find that highly interesting. Yeah, this song could, I think, go either way. Uh, going back to Chris Christopherson, he said one time that he he loved this song so much he wanted to put the first two lines of it on his tombstone. 
And Leonard Cohen said, I'm going to be mighty disappointed if he doesn't do that. <laughs> so no, it's, it's, po- it's poetic. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's for, uh, absolutely if, perfect. If you're in your twenties and you're trying to break away from conventional religion or conventional ideas, <laughs> this is a perfect song for you about how free and uh, independent you are. But if you're Johnny Cash and you sing it, it, it sounds fantastic yeah, said, because it, you're Johnny Cash. It's inc- incredible the amount of depth he can add to almost anything he sings. He does. That's, that's why I go back to what I said earlier. There's no telling if a song's good or not if it, if you put it in his mouth yeah. because he makes everything sound so good. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got a Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun, and his eyes were green. He had the nerve and he had the blood, there never was a horse like the Tennessee stud. Drifted on down into no So, this is the song I was referring to later I don't know why when I said this is the one miss on this album. I like this song. I'm so glad to hear y'all say it's, it's We've had three weeks of a lot of consternation up. I don't I've been against two of the albums. Tony didn't like ELO. It's been very difficult. <laughs> but for all of us to come together and say, why the hell did someone else need to cover this song? Yeah. Or why the hell is this on Johnny Cash? Well, and it's almost one of the things that I find funny about it is that it's recorded live at the Viper Room. Yeah. And... People are acting like they've never heard it before. Well, they haven't. I, one of the greatest quotes I ever heard about that live show where this was recorded, someone was writing about it, and they said, the room was full of people who did not deserve to be there. <laughs> <laughs> With over 25,000 editions of uh, issues or uh, versions of that song out, we probably don't need to talk about that much longer. How about we switch to a uh, Tom Waits song, Down There by the Train. You can hear the whistle, you can hear the bell, from the halls of heaven to the gates of hell. And there's room for the forsaken if you're there on time. You'll be washed of all your sins And all of your crimes If you're down there by the train 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 I told you guys my old adage about Tom Waits does he have an old adage about everyone? <laughs> Just about Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen. They're kind of the same one. A Tom Waits song sounds much better when Tom Waits is singing it. Oh, I, I'm going to I, um, with I you am God. going to have to take extreme exception <laughs> to that. I think Tom Waits can make any song sound fascinating. Anyway, I like anything Tom Waits sings. Yeah, this goes back to what I said earlier about you guys having an affinity towards singers that have... I, wa- I don't want to say... Voices. No. I want to. I want to. I'll couch it in this way: that have, um, they're not your classic sort of singer. They have a lot of character to their, mm-hmm. to what they do. <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I'm curious about how Johnny Cash came became connected to that song, and uh, I guess if it says train, he probably has a 
a Google search for all train songs. Um, I, I'm guessing. I uh, think Rick Rubin suggested this, and I, um, I actually thought that Rick Rubin asked Tom Waite. This was one of the songs that was commissioned by Rick Rubin. So maybe Tom Waite just had it lying around and said, "Okay, well, let's uh, give it to John." Yeah, Cash. he so he re- he did release it in 2006. So it may be that he did write it for. Yeah, because oh, and then he he uh, did it later. Yeah. Okay, that so, makes sense. Um, that that way we all can be right. Well, redemption written by Johnny Cash is next. And the blood gave life to the branches of the tree, and the blood was the price that set the captives free, and the numbers that came through the fire and the flood. Clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood From the tree streamed the light that This may be my favorite song on this I album. think it is my favorite song on the album it's, It is my favorite I, it, it oh, really pull, I, I wasn't sure if it was my Catholic, Catholic upbringing doing that But now I we're talking to a, an Anglican and a, and a loosely affiliated uh, Methodist. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I was listening to it, I, I, I was actually thinking of both of you guys, Anglican and a, a Catholic. And, okay, these guys are going to like this song. Um, well, it's a great song. It is. It's yeah, one know. of his better songs, I think. He's, and and he's, he's, he's perfect for it. Yeah. He is, and, it, and it's a perfect title. Yep. And and uh, and it's the imagery title for the whole album. It is, it is. and the imagery and the imagery he paints in this song mm-hmm. is as as uh, moving and visceral as any song I think he's ever done. Uh, it is, yeah. It's it's pretty. It, when I was running to the other day when I was listening to this, one of the things that popped into my head is like it, Cash had just not been oversaturated and been oh yeah been able to just write songs and not just be this hip parader guy like what could he have done and this song just made me think my god this is he could do songs well, like that's that's a great point so this is a strange feeling we haven't been in, in on an album where we agree on the song that, that doesn't work and agree on the best song in the album either i'm, I'm not sure how, well, how comfortable i am with this anyway i've got i've got an example um, it's like everything Johnny Cash has done before leads to this song uh, that's, and makes it perfect. That's I interesting. I have, that's an, interesting I have an analogy for it. Grand Torino. Ah. Uh-huh. Everything Clint Eastwood did <laughs> yeah. led to that movie. That's up, that movie. Yeah. The end of Grand Torino. You got this guy that's going around shooting everyone that's bad and, and you're just ready for the bloody... Uh, revenge scene at the end, yeah. and yeah. you're so set up not just by that movie, but by all of everything that came yeah, before. Yeah, and then here it comes, and boom, it's just beautiful. Anyway, um, it's a fan- it's all fantastic. To me. Oh, it was, it, it's a fantastic song. Okay, everybody agrees that redemption is amazing. Like a soldier, I'm like a soldier getting over the war. I'm like a young man getting over. His crazy days Like a bandit getting over His lawless ways I don't have to do that anymore 
I'm like a soldier getting over the war. This song's obviously autobiographical, right? It, I mean, I, I think it is. I, I actually have no idea where it comes from. I mean, he's written by Johnny Cash. It's a guy reflecting on his life. It's yeah. rife with mistakes, misdeeds, regrets. And he says, uh, what's that line in it? He says something about the, the um, uh, oh, I forget what it is. It's about the the, 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 vic, the, the spoils is you, you know, yeah. I think is what he says. Yeah. I, it's so, to me, it's so obvious about him and his relationship with his wife and that he's like a soldier yeah. coming back from battling all these demons. And at the end of the day, she's, his, she's there, you know. And it's also interesting because I think the guy, if it's not him, whoever is in the song, their point of view is they wouldn't be where they are had they not gone through all that. It's this well, weird sort of almost yeah. thankfulness. It's, it's like it. a bunch of things. Yeah. Like a soldier getting over the war, like a young man getting over his crazy days, like a bandit getting over his lawless ways. I don't have to do it anymore, like a soldier getting over the war. It's... It and sounds the, very autobiographical. Yeah, read the line about his wife, though, about or the consolation prizes or not consolation prizes. The, the, yeah, big, the spoils yeah, are the you. Spoils are the, yeah. I think uh, I I find it highly offensive that anyone would refer to their wife as a consolation prize. I I I, I backed away from that. That slipped. <laughs> Don't cut that, James. Lindsay sure hears that in there. I'm actually going to turn that up real loud. <laughs> Um, no, it's a great song. It's a fantastic song. I mean, those last two songs are and again like a one-two punch. It, it's, it goes it, back to if, it, <coughs> if Cash had just been able to get a a contract like Bob Dylan had, I think it just would have he would have well, been one of the best but, songwriters. But the people who talk about this his ver- his his songs on this album not being as strong as the other ones, that song and Redemption are as as strong to me. Well, those are as, horrible people. As the Nick Lowe song, yeah. You know, yeah, or the, the Glenn Danzig I mean, there, there songs. Are these, there are songs that Johnny Cash has written that I can't believe aren't folk songs. You know, like I the, still love someone. Yeah. What a great song! Great song, yeah, fantastic anyway, song. Uh, the people you're talking about, Tony, are, are horrible people. Well, they're music critics, so I probably agree yeah, with same you on that. Thing. The man who couldn't cry. There once was a man. He couldn't cry He hadn't cried for years and for years Napalm babies Movie love stories For instance, could not produce tears I love that title I love this song. I love I, this song. It's, I don't like story songs usually, but this is a fantastic. Well, and Cash has a history of story songs, you know, and this fits I, in I with like that. I like the way we're saying Cash now. Yeah, we're so good. <laughs> uh, but but I, I will say, I, I again, I, I don't know if it adds anything having people whooping and hollering in the background and acting, you know, like they. The, this yeah, is the, it's like it's like oh yeah. Yeah, it doesn't because that's not really what the song is about. And, and if how you many look, times are we those idiots at the yeah. concert? Yeah, <laughs> and if you're if you're if you're if you've heard and we talked about this earlier before we started the Loud Marine Wainwright the third version of it, it's uh it's funnier than Cash's 
Cash is so earnest when he's singing this song, you know? Yeah, and, and I have a hard... Uh, Loud Wainwright the third is hit and miss with me a lot of times because I think that it's it's one of those things like when I'm listening to a song I want to be transported I don't want reality coming into the the songs that often and Loud Rain Wainwright does that a lot yeah where it's just like okay I don't really under but this one I think is you know when he's talking about the um, his novel getting rejected and, you know, this Broadway play being, you know, a flop. And he gets all his revenge when he dies and goes and to he, heaven. He, he, he <laughs> dies and he goes to heaven. And, it, and it's, it's, uh, and it, was it the way, earth is in perpetual drought? Yeah. I mean, it's like it all, <laughs> like we'll show you. The laughed at him dies of cancer. And it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he can just, but, the thing that kind of drives me crazy about Loudon Wainwright is that his arrangements don't fit his songs a lot. And if you hear, I and this is, I do like this Loudon Wainwright song a lot, and I like the original version quite a bit. But again, Johnny Cash doing it takes it into a very different level. And as you said, I really wish this were one that were not done. Yeah. Live. It just it just doesn't yeah, add it doesn't add neither of the live versions add anything to those songs. Yeah. Um well there's nothing worse than a and especially live audience, LA. Yeah. Um resp- excuse me, responding inappropriately to a song. Yeah. But I remember Springsteen talking about how he got to the point where he's trying to tell people what a song's about and they're out there going, <laughs> And I'm very sympathetic for that being a deep person myself well this uh this album sort of put johnny cash in a different place it moved him and and what you said about uh alternative which is i think i've mentioned every time we bring up a term for describing a genre Uh of music i've mentioned i hate it Uh and i do hate the alternative uh label but it's uh that was essential for getting him cash reclassified and uh but he was a place where serious music listeners would take him seriously. He was always one of those guys, though. When He's he did his, when he did when he did his show, he had Bob Dylan on his show. You know, he was always he um, had uh, Derek and the Dominos on the show. Which yeah. is oh, I didn't very know that. I won't hold that against him. I don't think I'll hold that against him. But uh, <laughs> but uh, have you? Uh, there's a great clip of him and Louis Armstrong doing yep. a song together. It's incredible. Uh, They're so doing a. It's what? they're doing because um, Louis Armstrong played on the original version of this. Uh, Singing Breakman. Why can't I think of his name? Uh, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Rogers. Rogers. Yeah, he did a Jimmy Rogers song. He and he and Johnny Cash did uh, did a Jimmy Rogers song that Louis Armstrong played on the original. Um, but he, yeah, but he's he was always kind of this guy on the edge of stuff. He was always pushing the boundaries. Um, so it, it's kind of funny that people talk about this album as being kind of pigeonholing him in a different way. But I think you're right. I think it was absolutely necessary for him to get to go out on the note he did. And, and I don't. I know it isn't on this album, but I do think it's worth talking about his version of that Nine Inch Nails song, "Hurt." Hurt. What have I become? My sweetest friend 
Everyone I know goes away in the year And you could have it all My empire of dirt The the cash version of it is really it's heartbreaking. And then if you watch the video, it is I I defy anyone to watch that video and not yeah not what boohoo at the end of it. We haven't had a boohoo in a while. No, but that one that that song there and and uh, you see you know Johnny Cash had Parkinson's towards the end of his life and you you see him spilling yeah. Uh, I, wine over the I, piano. I, I, I'm not sure that's in. bad for your voice, though. I want to. <laughs> well, he's got a little tremolo <laughs> when he talks. Uh, I, I do want to say uh, on that note that there, there, I read something that I really found fascinating. This guy was talking about his dad being a huge Johnny Cash fan, and he stopped buying Johnny Cash albums after this album came out. And this was a guy who was a fan from the get go, and he said he didn't like Johnny Cash sounding vulnerable which he does on this album and on subsequent american recording albums and in particular hurt i mean you can't sound more vulnerable than you can on that and this guy didn't he want johnny cash was this big strong guy and it was somebody hung you know whatever he hung on hung on johnny cash i think that the reason well, this album is so yeah. great I'm is because the, the three of us are very sensitive uh uh people uh we don't fall. I mean, we don't fall into that machismo deal. That <laughs> no, but I, I, I just found that odd. And there's other people that talk about that. That these these albums um, are a I, different I direction, and I don't get that at all because that's part of the power of them. Yeah, I mean, you know? he was. It's, it's what he's so good at is this idea of a center in search of redemption. <laughs> I'm sorry, I need to see Is he no longer on mic? <laughs> Just wandering around. <laughs> Doug has left the building. Doug somehow thinks he's got one of those Madonna mics. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought I was. Let's get physical. I'm walking. I had to get some peanuts. Yeah, Doug, Doug, Anybody Doug want a peanut? <laughs> Let's get, anyway, I agree with all that. Anyway, too. Tony had one thing to say that I don't think he got to that was interesting. Oh, the uh, yeah, this, we'll just do this as a little coda to the end of the episode because we're talking about Johnny Cash. And doing, oh, we're so musical. We yeah, do, doing, a re- doing the research, some of you may know about this, but I found this fascinating. So Cash, during the outbreak of the Korean War, he did what a lot of people did. He joined uh, the services. He joined the Air Force. Um, he went through basic training in Lackland Air Force Base and technical training in Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio. San Antonio. Another reason we're experts, right? Yep. yep. Um, Jam lived in San Antonio. Went to uh, high school there. Yep. I lived really close to that. Anyway, he was si- he was uh, assigned to the Twelfth Radio Squadron, uh, mobile mo- of the U.S. Air Force uh, Sur- Security Service in Landsberg, West Germany. He rose to the rank of Staff Sergeant. And he became a Morse code operator. Now, here's what's interesting. He was intercepting Soviet Army transmissions, and he was really good at it. And I'm bringing this all up because when Joseph Stalin, who was the premier 
whatever. This, I think you're buying us who he is. Yeah. Even yeah. even. Oh, he hopes so. Um, when he died, uh, the uh, legend is that Johnny Cash was the first Westerner to hear that through the Soviet transmission that Stalin had died, and he uh, was trying. He was transcribing the Morse code chatter, and he yet it came across it, and he went uh, went and told his staff sergeant, and it went up the ranks from there. Um, which is, uh, which is pretty, pretty cool. And evidently his job was so top secret. He couldn't tell anybody for a year. It was years later where he actually let that slip that that was the deal. Um, I think that's, I think that's a fascinating story. I've always been excited. I don't think it's a either. Yeah. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have, uh, decided after Randy Newman, uh, <laughs> Apparently, there were some people who thought I was a little harsh on the Randy Newman podcast, and uh, I understand that, and uh, I think, Tony, did you not get a, uh, an email? I got a, uh, yes, I got a, 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 I got a communique from one of our, one of our listeners who says, and I quote, this week's victim, Randy Newman. <laughs> Thanks to the defenders, and he's speaking to Jam and myself, for breaking through the thinly veiled rage, which of course is directed <laughs> at Doug. So uh, we thank you. Uh, that was uh, thank you for some that was Trevor Moore. We'll give him a shout out. Thank you for uh, for uh, we appreciate on. all your feedback. Even <laughs> even if you're attacking the the host who had nothing but the best intentions. Um, <laughs> We also heard from another one of our valuable uh, tapsters that they would like to hear about more albums featuring women. And they said Blondie doesn't count. And I, I don't know why time, Blondie doesn't count. Last time I checked, I think Deborah Harry was in fact a female. She is way, way, way female, even <laughs> though I don't find her particularly attractive at all, especially compared to my wife. I love uh, when your creepy old man comes up. That is hilarious. <laughs> And, well, she's older than I am. That is true. Not in the pictures. <laughs> anyway, um, I like to focus on the talent of these people. Uh huh. But we would uh, be open to suggestions for albums by women. Now we've we've been given the names of women that we should talk about, but I'd really appreciate it if someone could send us in the. Albums by women that you think that we should talk about uh, as an advocate for women. I'm constantly bringing this up to the other two <laughs> who seem to ignore it. So I need your help uh, making that. Tony, do you have something for the kids tonight? I would like to recommend an album by John Langford and the Four Lost Souls. This is on Bloodshot Records. It was recorded and released in two. Well, man, I don't know if it was recorded. It was released in uh, 2016. It was recorded at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals. Um, the four lost souls are John Langford, John Samansky, Bethany Thomas, and Tawny Newsom. Um, and this is an Americana album in in its essence. It's R and B. It's country. It's folk. It's rock and roll. It covers all the bases. It's it's really great. Um, for those of you who don't know, John Langford is uh, was uh, a founding member of the Mekons. He's also in the Waco Brothers, and this is this is a side project of his. Um, and the album's fantastic. Um, 
there's a song called that I really like called I Thought He Was Dead. where he shares vocals with one of the females on the album. Natchez Trace is also a song that's really a standout. Um, the whole album's great. So, you know, do yourself a favor and get it. The reason I thought about him is he was part of that group that did the tribute album in 1998. And he tells a story about actually getting to meet Johnny Cash and how he saw him walking across you know, stage and they, 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 he was with another guy. They knew he was going to shake his hands with their wife and their hands off to get the sweat off. And it just would just filled up the, filled the room up, you know, and couldn't have been nicer. And the funniest thing about the story is he's really happy that they're doing this tribute album. And Langford tells him that they're, yeah, they're, we're going to do a record release next week. And Johnny Cash says, oh, I wish, uh, I wish I'd known that, uh, June Carter and I would have stayed over for that one. Uh, that's a pretty cool thing, you know. It would have been at some club yeah, someplace, but that'd be one of my favorite memories of my life. I yeah, so. good. All right. Well, we got something new, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, it's actually the Randy Newman podcast that uh, brought this to the forefront in an effort to uh, explain the difference between albums we like and albums that we think are high quality. We have decided to start attaching a rating, one to five, at the end of each podcast on the album we reviewed. Normally we would do this before Tony tells us about something else, but this time we didn't. <laughs> because because peanuts were involved. <laughs> and there were peanuts. Um, Tony, this Johnny Cash album, yeah. one to five, what do you give it? Five. Well, that was uh It didn't seem like you thought about that very. I've long thought about it a I guess lot. You, uh, I, I, I'm I pretty have, certain. Out of uh, out of the thirty three of these we've done, um, this might rank third or fourth in in albums that I've listened to the most. Jm, one through five. I'd give it a three point five. Um, there are. I love Johnny Cash's versions of other people's songs. I think he does a, a great job of that. Um, I always like a little bit more production. I would say if we had done his next album, I would have given it a higher rating. But, um, yeah, I think it, I, I, I'm going to listen to it again, I'm sure. Well, I hate... I hate to agree with a bass player on anything, but <laughs> I do love the next album. You guys just like it because it's got the Heartbreakers on it. Well, I don't know why I like it. I just like it. And uh, I, I feel this uh, need not to explain that to you. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give this one a 4.3. Which um, I have to clarify that uh, the All Music Guide gives everything under the sun five stars. So I'm very against uh, oh, five star ratings. Sorry, yeah. And well, it's not, you love it, man. It, it, you can you can use a five star, but I want to use a five star when uh, when I have no choice. So 
Uh, I, I think it's a very good album. I don't think anybody will be uh, be uh, disappointed with it. It's a funny thing about Johnny Cash that occurred to me this week is I don't know anyone who doesn't like Johnny Cash, and I don't want to know that person. Yeah, I don't. Okay. Anyone who says they don't like Johnny Cash, they stay stay clear. I don't need to know them. Well. I'm being an open-minded person who doesn't hate. I don't feel exactly that way. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we'll be taking a look at an album by a major American artist, Bruce Springsteen. His second album, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Show. sure and look us up on Facebook and we're also on Twitter at tappingvinyl.com and we are on Instagram you can also send us a email at tappingvinyl at gmail.com on behalf of our host Doug Cooper our co-host Tony Slagle and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, please, don't kill your girlfriend, even if she is named Delilah. It's Delia. <laughs> <laughs>